Good morning, Calvary. Please stand where you are for the reading of God's word. This morning's scripture reading will be taken from Isaiah chapter 26, verse 16 to Isaiah 27, verse 1. The English Standard Version reads as follows. O Lord, in distress they sought you. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them. Like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth, so were we because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant. We writhed. But we have given birth to wind. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth, and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth will disclose the bloodshed or cover its slain. In that day, the Lord, with his hard and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. The word of the Lord. giving honor to God the Father, God the Son, who is the head of my life and of your life, and to the Spirit of God. And with thanksgiving toward Pastor Gerald and toward the elders of this assembly, who kindly have allowed me to preach again, and who have entrusted me and members of the staff with your lives and with your souls, every time we preach. And to all of you for whom I give thanks also on this day, most of whom now I have not seen for eight months, but look forward to seeing you again really soon. Good morning. I'm so thankful to be here to preach before you today. Let us go quickly into prayer and then into the preaching of God's word. Let's pray. Father, now bless us with the grace of hearing and understanding your word. May you be kind to reveal your voice to us. May you make us a people who seek to do what is pleasing in your sight at all times. May I have grace now as I stand in the steed that you have given here to show your mercy and love and kindness and goodness to your people. We praise the name of Christ 
We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. On May 25th, 2020, George Floyd, a 46-year-old African-American man, was killed in Minneapolis while being arrested. Pastor Eric, do we have to go back there again? I mean, the pandemic is already hard enough, and now we have election for a whole week. These are already troubling for us. Do we really have to go back to all that stuff in this summer? Yes, we do have to go back. And you're going to have to relive in this here with me for a minute, while I, in another sense, live in it every day. Every time I drive my car, every time I ride my bike, every time I go to the store. So please bear with me and join me in this for just a minute. On May 5th, 2020, George Floyd, a 46-year-old African-American man, was killed in Minneapolis while being arrested. Derek Chauvin, a white police officer with the Minneapolis Police Department, kept his knee and body weight on Floyd's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds, even after Floyd was handcuffed and laying face down on the pavement. And even as Floyd repeatedly said, I can't breathe. Two additional police officers helped restrain Floyd and a fourth officer prevented those standing around from interfering. When a murder of the type of George Floyd's happens, a murder that is laden with racist stripes, racist because the one with power acted with disregard and malice for the one powerless. And you can only have racism and racist acts when you are in power. When a murderer of this type happens, a concern is that the murderer will go free. The concern has merit because there have been many racially laced murders, murders by white officers against African Americans in which the officers were not charged crime and the loved ones of the African American victim and society at large did not receive justice. Groups like Black Lives Matter then arise to address the issue of the need for racial justice. Athletes take a knee during the playing of the national anthem. Monuments to slave owners are toppled. Businesses pledge monies for minority-owned businesses and scholarships. And for a brief period of time, we give attention to high-profile murders. Even though there's been a miscarriage of justice in the present world, when a Breonna Taylor does not get justice, we comfort ourselves with the notion that God will be just toward the murderer and toward the victim or victims. We know that the Lord is the one who disdains murder more than any other. He is the one who says, you shall not murder. He is the one who will judge all murder, murders and murderers and ensures that murderers will not get away with their crimes in the world to come. 
terrible pictures of damnation and terror before God's face should fill our minds as we think of how horrid it will be for the murderer. Screams, distraught looks, fleeing in terror and loss of hope are the images we should have of the one who takes the life of another as he or she goes to meet with God. The judgment of God will be the scariest event known to the history of the world and it is sure to come upon murderers and upon those who have stood by with little tangible objections as murders or as murders have happened. The Lord promises to bring such judgment in the present world, not just in the world to come. Therefore, what do we do about the fact that this same judgment of God is coming to us due to us for largely accepting everyday murder all around us as commonplace when we have the message to make a dent in murder in our society? This is Mission's Month at Calvary Memorial. Since I am preaching during our month in which we focus on missions, I want to talk about missions today. And since our theme for this year's Missions Month is justice, I want to talk about justice today. Since we are preaching our way through the Old Testament and we are in our current series, I want to stay on track with the series and preach Isaiah 26 and 27 today. By the way, a passage that I was assigned. I didn't just pick this passage. And since our passage is about judgment coming to the earth for all bloodshed, I want to talk about murder today. In the little apocalypse section of Isaiah 24 through 27, we find this passage in Isaiah 26 and 27 prophesying about the coming judgment of God upon the whole earth. It is going to allow me to attempt to bring out three strands of missions and justice and murder together. The passage has implications for our behavior in the face of the judgment of God upon murders and upon bystanders to murder. It has four gospel implications. Allow me, if you will, to dispense quickly with the exposition of these four implications so that I can get to some very practical applications. In this passage, we see first, we under the distress of God's disciplining judgment in verse 16. In our passage, as the Lord judges the nations, Israel can feel the heat coming from the ovens of judgment. Judgment upon the nations means exile in Babylon for Israel also, while it does mean judgment for Babylon. Israel is caught up in a bigger plan of God to hold all people in. The Lord brings such judgment. Israel finds herself in distress. So what do her members then do? They cry out to the Lord in prayer, recognizing the discipline of God upon them. 
I can imagine that their cries were something like, Lord, please have mercy upon us. Lord, please deliver us. Lord, please slow your judgment upon us. Such prayers would have sought good for the people of God as a whole. Such prayers show that they recognize God's wrath on the earth also as discipline upon them for their sins. So too, when we look at the moral decay in societies before the Lord, a decay that is present in all societies, we should cry out in prayer, asking the Lord to curb and stop that which has brought his wrath. It should bring repentance from us for being part of a climate that allows murders to coexist boldly alongside of his church and alongside the presence of his believers. Second, we should admit our failure to accomplish mission to the nations. You see this in verses 17 and 18. Israel recognizes they have failed at two tasks given to them as a nation. One is to act in a way so as to help people be delivered from God's very wrath. But there has been no deliverance, it says. The other is to defeat the nations and to secure the promised land, but there has been no fall of the nations. Like a lady writhing in deep pains of labor, so too under the discipline of God, Israel has writhed in pain, but they have given birth to wind, which is to say they have given birth to nothing because wind is fleeting, and they have not given birth to deliverance or to conquering. They have simply existed and struggled with following the practices of the nations around them. And for that, they are well deserving of their discipline. The church has two similar tasks. One is to take the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Another is to tear down strongholds that exalt themselves against the knowledge of Christ. False ideas competing for a place as truth against the gracious message of atonement in Christ alone. We have had many successes in these tasks. In many ways, we also, however, have failed to be faithful to personal evangelism and participation in defeating the false ideas of this present age. The murderer down the street from us, who we don't know until that person commits murder, that person might be just one gospel presentation away from having a new heart and a change in mind. The murderer we saw on the news might have been one discussion away from, the, from murdering or pulling a trigger, a discussion about the image of God in man, rather than that person going to make retaliation for a broken relationship. 
The image of God in man concerns our self-awareness and nature as self-preserving. It is what is innate in being human that gives dignity to every one of us. It is what makes the taking the life of another wrong. We have no right to attack another that the Lord has made to resemble him ontologically. And it is ontologically, not anatomically. We have some conversations and efforts to be had in order to be faithful to these tasks. We need to walk over and talk to people about the grace of God in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the first step in preventing murder. It is the first step in missions to the nations where many guilty of murder exist. Third, it means we should have hope in the resurrection. Seen in verses 19, Israel receives the promise that she will have life after God's fury. Just as certain as is due to fall from the mountains onto the land of Israel, so too it is certain that the dead shall live and sing, and the earth shall yield Israel's slain bodies. The resurrection of the bodies of believing members of faithful Israel is certain to happen. It is a promise we will see fulfilled yet in the future. But this promise of resurrection recognizes some temporary shelter will be needed as the Lord finishes his judgment upon the nation and upon the nations. As the Lord brings his fury upon the blood that was shed upon murder. Despite the murders for which Israel is also guilty, resurrection is assured. Between the lines that we read here is a truth about the Lord providing justice to Israel by some other means. A means that will pay for the murders, yet will allow believing Israel to rise from the dead. We are looking at the gospel between these lines. Fourth, dispensing quickly. It means we should be certain of the destruction of Leviathan. In verse 1 of chapter 27, you see the Lord pulling out his sword to make sure that the twisted serpent Leviathan, the sea monster, does not get away. Following the church father's interpretation on this passage, I agree that Leviathan here in this passage is a symbol for Satan. In other places, I am just as confident that Leviathan refers to the forces of evil present in Genesis 1-2, in the way that the forces of chaos are present in other ancient Near Eastern creation stories. Still, in other places in Scripture, I am confident that Leviathan refers to an actual sea monster no longer extant as far as we have discovered. This is Job's Leviathan. I am equally confident that Leviathan in Scripture never refers to unbridled human government, even though I respect the work of Hobbes. I think it is important for me to say that during the U.S. election day that is now turned into election week. 
I also say that Leviathan represents Satan because this figure is judged as part of the Lord's judgment upon human bloodshed by people of the nations on the earth. Leviathan points to a figure behind murder, a figure we do not need New Testament revelation to identify as a murderer from the beginning. Instead, if the Lord is coming to judge bloodshed shed by people upon the earth, and part of that judgment means that he will remove Leviathan, the twisted serpent-like sea monster in ancient tales, then the Lord is removing the forces of evil that contribute to murder. The church fathers are right. It is Satan. One day the evil of murder will be a thing of the past because Christ will crush the head of its progenitor. In the meantime... What should the people of God do in the world that is full of murder and will be judged for its murderous ways? First thing we should do, you and I should stop putting off reconciling a relationship filled with hatred. Let me expand that some more. You and I should stop putting off reconciling a relationship filled with hatred where the other party party has come with terms the other party has demonstrated a pattern of behavior indicating that he or she is repentant from the wrongdoing toward you and where that same party has shown behavior that demonstrates that he or she will not harm you going forward. Jesus is the one who said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift on the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lease your accuser, hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus is the one who says, leave your gift at the altar, go and be reconciled, because someone is accusing you of not reconciling that relationship. If the relationship is actually reconcilable, and the person has demonstrated terms of peace and a pattern of behavior that makes it possible to rec reconcile, maybe not restore the relationship exactly the way it was in the past, but allow you to forgive and to be cordial and to have a relationship with that person in which you could be friendly, you need to stop putting that off and go and reconcile. Don't harbor hatred that could lead to murder in your heart. Note that for Jesus, again, there is a path from anger to murder. At one point, you can tolerate the person. 
and be satisfied with angry feelings. But if that person becomes intolerable, you could wish to do away with the person so that you can have peace. So if we do not seek to make the relationship to be peaceful, we are in danger of the very hellfires we expect for those who take the lives of others. I was on a Zoom call on Friday in which there was a breach in relationship among some of us on the call, and not a small breach. At one point, after some intense words had passed, I remember looking at the screen and thinking to myself, I am going to enjoy all of these people as members of one another in Christ for all eternity. What a joy that is going to be. I caught myself thinking, it, and then I thought to myself, I really need to work hard on making these relationships be as peaceful and as gracious and as loving in Christ as they can be. My brothers and sisters are not going anywhere, and anyone from the outside should be able to look in on us and see the love of Christ without seeing a hint of unresolved anger toward each member that is on this call. I know that was the spirit of Christ that kindly gave me those thoughts. I and you need to make sure we are working on reconciling relationships. Number two, invite the Spirit of God to expose your own bitterness, hatred, and anger. Please do not say you have no anger toward anyone. I had to get past that self-denial too. All that is nonsense that, oh no, we, I never hate anybody. No, I'm never angry with anybody. I don't get angry. My wife is probably laughing at me because she can probably remember a time when I used to say, oh no, I don't get angry with anybody. And I'm sure many of you probably say, you know, Pastor Eric is a really nice guy. I never see him get, getting angry with anybody. And you would be right because even if I were to feel anger, I would take it and just stuff it back down in there and say, Lord, please help me to overcome that anger. So let's get past the self-denial about how we never get angry uh, over anybody or with anybody. It is so easy to make cognitive dissonance of judgments and commands against hatred. We can condemn others in our mind and heart as vile and evil without deep reflection on our own personal motives, intentions, goals, and passions. We virtually ignore impetuses like fear of harm, fear of failure, avoidance of poverty, pride of beating a parent's prophecy of a subtle desire for power or control, envy, jealousy, loneliness, lack of sexual fulfillment, a longing for love, a quest for greater esteem, or even personal trauma. And personal trauma is not sinful, but trauma can be a wrongful motivation for how you're feeling about another person. We need to ask the Spirit of God to go inward and clean out the innermost 
secret crevices of our hearts and minds and souls so that we are free from any hint of anything that would lead to murder and the judgment thereof. When we are clear on our own motives and sins, then we can be both gracious and righteous toward the sins of others. Then we can see anger and murder in others and not stand for it because we will not tolerate it within ourselves. An issue with the murders of the George Floyds and Sandra Blands of this world is that our tolerance of our own murderous selves is not low enough. Until we can see the problem of hatred within, we cannot see the problem, the real problem, with taking a life. We don't see ourselves as murderers who are due the judgment of God for the hatred that is in our hearts. Murder is like the sin of racism or adultery to us. No one wants the scarlet letters of M or R or A brazened on their chest. And we will fight tooth and nail not to be labeled such. No, 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 I don't hate anybody. No, 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 I'm not racist. No, 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 I'm not guilty of adultery. But looking inward to see if we have dealt with anger and pride and lust is a totally different matter. Outwardly, in activity, we might have met the standard, but inwardly, we might be guilty of the most heinous things. Once the Spirit of God exposes the murderer inside of each one of us, then we can work on removing a two-tier system of thinking about murder in society. Murder is one sin in a catalog of sin in scripture. Certainly, it is heinous. But should we categorize it as greater than idolatry or adultery or bearing false witness? No. Bearing false witness in a courtroom has led to people living on death row for decades and has led to some losing their lives for crimes they did not commit. The false witness led to murder. Who holds the legal system and society accountable for that? And have you never counseled a friend who has experienced adultery or multiple adulteries to hear of first in your counseling the metaphorical deaths your friend has lived, and second, what has died in friendship and relationships with children and extended family members, when those metaphorical deaths get to glory with the perpetrators, will Jesus say, well, your adultery was not as bad as murder, or will he say, your adultery makes you worthy of death in the hands of a holy God, just as worthy of death as anyone who is murdered? Scales and tears are the systems we make to vilify others so that we can feel good about ourselves. The Lord does not make a tiered system. Even where we have statements of abomination for some sins in the Old Testament and not others, and statements in the New Testament about great 
really talking about greater wraths of hotter hells or lesser, longer eternities? I mean, how would this go? In hell, could we have a conversation like this? Hey, how hot are you over there where you are? Oh, it's about 20 degrees Celsius over here. Well, you then should see if you can get released and come over here where it's only 15,000 degrees Celsius for us adulterers because you 20,000 degrees Celsius. Or, hey, adulterer, how long are you in for that adultery? Oh, I'm just in for two eternities. Oh, really? Well, I've got three eternities because I murdered someone. I mean, are we really talking about lesser wraths or lesser time spent in eternity? Not having tears does not mean that I should take my eye off the taking of a physical life. Not one in the womb or not one outside of the womb. What it does mean is that we need to adjust our moral code dials so that our yuck factor over hatred in our own hearts rises to the level of the heinous status we give to the taking of a physical life. Our refusal to allow one another to have unresolved anger issues should be as strong as our refusal to let another member of this body take a life knowingly. It should be as strong as our refusal to cover up the taking of a life knowingly. Third, and finally, we should accept the forgiveness of God in Christ. There is forgiveness for murder and anger and hatred. And for all sins, we need to go to Jesus and confess there is no other way to be free from murder, the guilt of murder, by bystanding murder, and all the other sins that we see in Scripture. In 1990, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch ran a count of the of every murder in the city on its front pages in order to wake up its citizens to the problem of murder. I think some other major cities in the country also did that in the 1990s. I can't remember, maybe even Chicago did that. In St. Louis at that time, that was roughly 150 murders. If Chicago had done this same thing for last year's murder and had put it on the front page of its major newspaper every day, that would have been 490 to 510 murders, depending upon who was counting. As vile and as evil as these crimes were, any one of those murderers who committed those crimes could call on Christ and could be forgiven of the judgment of God, could be forgiven for sin and be removed from experiencing the wrath of God. Anyone responsible for the Tulsa race massacre in 1921 who called on Jesus would have been forgiven for sin. You who 
are filled with hatred for people who have violated you, who have cheated you, who have used you, who have stolen from you, who have left you and lied to you. Ask Jesus to free you from that hatred. Hatred that is on the same trajectory that leads to murder. And ask he who is the Holy One, the Holy One who was killed as a substitute for our murderers, murderous ways and sins, and he will set you free. Murder and all sins like it do not have to end in the judgment of God upon us. They can end in the judgment of God that has come upon Christ. Let his murderous death substitute for ours. Let us pray. And now, Father, we thank you for your mercy, which is everlasting. May murder and all the things leading to it be far from our hearts and minds and souls by the power of Christ available to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.